Welcome uh, to Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Dr. Michael Egner. I have the honor and the pleasure of hosting uh, this segment. Uh, this is the second segment of my interview with uh, Dr. Joshua Ferris, uh, a professor of theology of science, uh, and it's a fascinating discussion about uh, Cartesian dualism uh, and, uh, and all sorts of matters that uh, relate to it. Uh, so Joshua, welcome back and thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Josh and I were just talking briefly uh, about one gap in the the hylomorphic Thomist way of looking at uh, at the human person that has always bothered bothered me, and I get the sense that Joshua has the same general perspective, and that is that there there isn't so clear an an I kind of a metaphysically simple me in the Thomistic perspective. Uh, to the Thomist, a human being is a composite of body and soul. And that's always bothered me. Uh, Peter Kreft, uh, who's a, a philosopher and theologian at Boston College, has described this I as, as the heart. Uh, I mean, uh, there's a great deal of reference to it in the scriptures. And that makes a lot of sense to me, but I'm not sure that Thomism has worked out that notion of the heart. Could you, uh, Joshua, see kind of a Thomist Cartesianism? <laughs> that, uh, could, could the two be blended in a way that, that did justice to both? Possibly. I haven't seen anyone develop anything like this. Um, it, um, and maybe, maybe because of the sort of the respective baggage with each sort of tradition that's, that's there, nobody's tried to work this out. But I, um, obviously, the, uh, you've mentioned the challenges to sort of um, broadly Cartesian view, or especially to Descartes. Less of a, I think, less of a problem for sort of the neo-Cartesians that are developing the view today. I'm not sure that the commitment, sort of the minimalist commitment that I have to the idea that I am, the, I am my soul, uh, sort of has the same sort of baggage or implications. But it seems to me that you could have, you could affirm all sorts of views about uh, specific views about the, um, the the body itself, the nature of the body. And and be a committed sort of Cartesian in this in this way, and and this is the strength. In I think this is the bigger challenge. The bigger challenge would be for a materialist or a Thomist to come up with a um, some sort of accounting of, of personal identity uh, that seems to be outside of the realm, or say an emergentist or a non-reductive physicalist to come up with with an accounting of personal identity. Uh, that just that seems um, it just doesn't seem like we have any resources to do so to 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 sort of do that. Um, but it seems to me that we could have um, a Cartesian intuition. Uh, we could we could recognize the unavoidable um, Cartesian cogito uh, assumption uh, or this basic metaphysical assumption that I am me, I am my soul. Uh, I am not my composite or m my animal uh, that is uh, has this unique formal principle in it, uh, but I am I am my soul that uh, can lose parts and physical parts and remain me and could even exist in the afterlife or disembodied. That seems the harder problem to me to explain um, on other views, but it seems perfectly compatible that you could have a sort of 
more of a, um, a robust neo-Aristotelian view of the body, or you could have a, a view of the body that is a complex set of um, phenomenal properties, like something like Barclay's view, or you could affirm something something else that it's that that there are these higher order teleological principles that are organizing the body that I interact with that doesn't in any way undermine the sort of Cartesian intuition. But again, um, I think as a Cartesian, one could have a robust, functionally integrated uh, relationship with the body that is, um, that is, that is meaningful and, and robust and, and doesn't uh, sort of denigrate the body to uh, mere machinery. And as a Cartesian also, I don't think I'm committed to I, even Descartes' claim that the, the beasts are um, mindless or soulless. If they do have some sort of consciousness or first-person consciousness in particular, then um, they would have something like a they would have a soul like I do that would have to be created by God, and I think that's okay. Yeah. What has led me to a Thomist view, and I, I must say that had it not been for for neuroscience, which is what led me to a Thomist view. Um, I would I would probably be a Cartesian because I, I, I do agree that there's a great deal of, uh, there's a great deal to say for it. Although my, my, my sense of Cartesianism is that the closer we get to Barclay and idealism, the better Cartesianism gets. That is that I, I, I think it's my sense is, is it's not idea it's not idealistic enough because it, it's really the Cartesian understanding of matter that bothers me more than the Cartesian understanding of the soul. Um, but I don't know that they're so separable, meaning that, uh, pardon the pun, meaning that if there's a metaphysical glitch in general Cartesian metaphysics, it really impairs the Cartesian understanding of the soul. I, I, if whatever the body-mind-soul relationship is, I think we would all agree that it needs to be fit in as a coherent whole with nature. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a naturalist, but we are obviously a part of nature in a very meaningful way. And so uh, the, the whole metaphysical view has to work for me. Uh, and I think idealism is very nice that way in that I think you can get a, a consistent, coherent metaphysical perspective from a Barclayan metaphysical way of looking at things. And you, you can do the same with, uh, with Thomism. I don't think you can do it with Cartesianism. Yeah, so let me ask you some uh, a couple questions. So it seems to me that my reticence to move in the direction of a sort of Barclayan or I guess you might call it Cartesian idealist view that, that has a Barclayan flair to it, because I, I, Barclay doesn't sort of specify in a robust way, from what I recall reading, in a robust way, the sort of individual essence or individuality or the particularity issue that just kind of um, naturally comes out of uh, sort of uh, a Cartesian way of, of, of approaching these issues. Um, but uh, it seems to me the reason why I've been reticent to go in the sort of more robust idealist direction is that, um, so if you take, this is getting into your specialty. So this is out of my specialty. In neuroscience, you have these split brain experiments Right, and you have um, evidence that suggests that there are split perspectives that can emerge or uh, causally um, come about as a result of the split brain. 
And you have other neuroscientific experiments that suggest similar phenomena, which seems to support something like a, a more robust kind of substantial dualism that is not had on maybe on idealism. And that's, I mean, that's, that's an open question. I'm sure a Barclay and idealist have ways of explaining that, but it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be intuitive or the product say of common sense. And this is, this is another sort of larger issue with Barclay and idealism or some, some sort of similar view is that it is, it just isn't the product of common sense. It's not necessarily inconsistent with common sense. It, so if there's, unless I have some sort of overwhelming reason to sort of pick up a view, a theory that makes better sense of the scientific data, I'm just inclined to take a more common sense approach and say, yeah, we have these two substances. Neuroscience seems to support that when my you know, when something happens to my brain, it, it affects me and my conscious states functionally, or at least it affects my perspective, uh, which you might distinct. There's a distinction there between uh, perspective and consciousness. And that seems to be more naturally at home with something like a Cartesian dualism rather than a sort of idealist perspective that doesn't give substantial sort of substantiality to the body. Right. I think the, the strongest argument from science for idealism. And quite honestly, I think this is decisive, or at least at, at our pr present level of science, is um, an observation that I heard about years ago in college that fascinates me. It's, it's, it still fascinates me. And that is, when you look at the quantum mechanical world, or the world on the quantum mechanical level, matter disappears. That is, that, that, that in its most basic or in its in its most detailed reality at the quantum world nature is an idea it's it's not material electrons are not little balls of things electrons are ideas uh, they're 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 ideas expressed by by equations by schrodinger's equation for example when um, you look in a reference book and it gives you the mass of an electron it doesn't say which electron, because if you want to know the mass of a billiard ball, you have to say which one, because they'll be a little different from ball to ball. But there isn't any difference from electron to electron. There's one mass. And people have even said, do we know that there's not more than one electron? Could it just be one that is popping up everywhere? So the whole notion of individuation of matter disappears at the, at, uh, the quantum level which is a very idealistic way of looking at the world. So I think quantum mechanics is, a, is sort of the scientific expression of idealism. And it's a powerful, powerful argument. Uh, so I, you, you really can't make a case that matter is in the mind because quantum mechanics is all mind. So I think idealism in that, in the, from that perspective, I think I, idealism is true. And I think it is in some ways the best way of looking at nature. But there are aspects, particularly of the, of the mind-brain relationship, that strongly support Thomism. You mentioned split, split brain surgery, which is endlessly fascinating stuff. And um, it was originally, the, the original research on it was, was by Roger Sperry, who's a neurophysiologist, uh, worked in, in the mid-20th century, won, won the Nobel Prize for, for this. 
and um, I've operated on and worked with split brain patients uh, over the years. And uh, and Sperry noted this too, that in some ways the most remarkable thing about them is not the stuff that Sperry found. What Sperry found, which were perceptual disconnections, were very subtle, uh, very difficult to find. That's why he won the Nobel Prize for it, was that they weren't obvious. It took a lot of very subtle research to find it. The most remarkable thing about these people is that they're, they're no different after the surgery than, than they are before. That the hemispheres of their brain are, are, are functionally disconnected. And they're the same person. And it, it would be as if you took your chainsaw to your desktop computer, cut it in half, and it still worked just fine. I'd say there's something awfully odd about this computer. Because <laughs> it shouldn't work just fine when you cut it in half. But it does. Uh, and that's an awfully strange thing. And it was so strange that it led Sperry to reject materialism. He, he, had, he had no use for the materialist view at all. But there is a split. Things do split. And what's, but what splits is only perception. Perception splits. But intellect doesn't split. A, a sense of self doesn't split. The will doesn't split. And um, there's been fascinating follow-up on, on Sperry's work by two researchers, uh, Justine Surgent and Yars Pinto, who have looked at these patients more carefully, and uh, they've found uh, an observation that's, that's intriguing. There's a, a brilliant experiment that Surgent did with, with these patients. And what she did is she took a bunch of split-brain people, and she um, presented letters to their visual fields in such a way that she was presenting different letters to the isolated hemispheres. Like your right hemisphere might see a K and your left hemisphere might see an N. And um, your hands and your arms, of course, are controlled by the opposite hemisphere. So in a person with split brain, their right hand is controlled by the left hemisphere, which sees their right visual field. So their right hand can only respond to the right visual field. And their left hand can only respond to the left visual field. And there's no connection, at least no obvious connection between the two of them. So what she did was she would show them letters, and uh, she'd ask them to you know, push a button when they see a letter, blah, blah, blah. And then she'd say, I want you to push a button when one or both of the letters are consonants. I'm, I'm sorry, are vowels. When one or both of the letters are vowels, push a button. So people would see these disconnected letters these different hemispheres that aren't, that aren't connected. And when they would see a vowel, they'd push it. But they weren't told which hand to use to push the button. And there was a button at each hand. And as it turned out, when they would see a vowel, say, in their left, in their left hemisphere, they would just as often push the button with their left hand as they would with their right hand. That is, they'd push the buttons regardless of what hemisphere was driving the hand. It was just 50-50 which meant that somehow the hemisphere that didn't see the vowel knew it was a vowel. And the interesting thing is that these people still had a perceptual disconnection, but they could figure out which one was the vowel, and that was not disconnected. That was unitary. It didn't matter which hand and which hemisphere. They knew. So that so beautifully fits the Aristotelian Thomistic view of the rational soul that it takes my breath away. What it's saying is that the perceptual dis, uh, disconnection is there because the sensitive soul, which is the material powers of, of the brain, is in fact split 
or the, the sensitive powers of the soul are split. So perception is split. But intellect and will, which are immaterial powers of the soul, cannot be split. And indeed, they, they are not split with split brain surgery. So um, it's beautiful work. It's fascinating work. It, to me, it, it, it hews perfectly to the Aristotelian Thomistic model of the mind-brain relationship. Uh, and Cartesianism doesn't explain very well the perceptual split, and idealism doesn't, uh, doesn't explain it well either. But Thomism nails it. Uh, the other thing that I think is absolutely fascinating, and this is something that has not been, in my view, questioned or investigated as it should just by the medical profession, let alone the, the, you know, the, uh, the basic scientists, is an observation by Wilder Penfield, uh, who is the pioneer in seizure surgery uh, back in the mid-20th century. And Penfield noted that there are no intellectual seizures. That is that um, when people have seizures, uh, the, the, the seizure is a, is, a, is a kind of a random stochastic activation of the brain. Electrical impulses get going, uh, and they can happen anywhere, do anything, meaning that it can make your arm jerk, it can make you fall down and go unconscious, it can make you see flashes of light, it can make you have emotional experiences, it can make you have memories and smells. and all, Practically anything can be a part of a seizure, except people never have intellectual content. That is, people never think abstractly during a seizure. And that's remarkable. That is, that no one ever does calculus as a part of a seizure, uh, or even simple arithmetic. No one ever adds one plus one repeatedly as a seizure. No one ever contemplates justice or mercy as a, as a seizure. But practically anything else you can think of has been described as the ictus of a seizure. And Penfield said, why not? I mean, if most of the brain is devoted to abstract thought, why wouldn't an occasional seizure fire off an occasional ab abstract thought? And it never does. And that's exactly what Aristotle would have said. He said, yeah, because abstract thought is not material. It doesn't come from the brain. The brain conditions our ability to think abstractly. If you drink a lot of alcohol and you have ETOH floating around your neurons, you're not going to think abstractly as well as if you don't. But the actual cause of the abstract thought is not the brain. It doesn't come from the brain. But then again, there are thoughts that are caused by the brain, but they're not abstract. They're uh, emotions, they're perceptions, they're, they're movements. So this dichotomy between perception and cognition is very real in neuroscience and the only metaphysical framework that also has that dichotomy is the Aristotelian Thomist understanding of the soul. So that, that's why I'm a Thomist. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm hung up on, on sort of the, um, the Aristotelian framework as, uh, as being the only way to sort of make sense of or explain that that sort of data. I mean, when you read somebody like Richard Swinburne and his The Evolution of the Soul, he, he gives all sorts of thought experiments about how desires and sense perceptions are uh, somehow uh, functionally integrated uh, processes that are, are, are dependent upon cognition and neurology. And so he recognizes that. So in that way, he may be... Um, he may be affirming something like an Aristotelian view of the body, but is it, 
someone who affirms a kind of let's let's say hypothetically um, emergentism is is a phenomena that uh, is sort of set up by God as, as a sort of law-like relationship where there is this lawful occurrence that, that, that just occurs when, when these complex set of conditions are met. Would that not provide any sort of explanatory power similar to the Aristotelian conception? Sure. The, I, I say this humorously, but I, I actually believe it. First of all, I... I I think idealism is best understood, uh, as uh, Augustine said, that creation is a thought in the, in the mind of God. That is, that we in, 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 in the universe we inhabit are, are thoughts in God's mind. And that's it. That is, that, 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 that they're quite real because they're, they're thoughts in God's mind. They're, 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 that's mm-hmm. not to diminish mm-hmm. them. But that's what we are. And and that's that's an uh, that's an idealistic uh, understanding of metaphysics, but I, I I would say tongue in cheek that God is a Thomist. That is that the structure in the divine mind hues rather closely to the Thomistic view. So I you could say that I'm that, that I'm I'm a Thomistic idealist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To me, that makes the most sense. That's the thing that that that, but. I can't bet because of neuroscience, as well as some other things in science. For for example, um, the collapse of the quantum waveform. Uh, you know the, the the notion that things exist in in an array of potential states until they are observed, and then they collapse into an actual state, uh, is straight out of Aristotle, who described potency and act. I mean, that's it's in Heisenberg noted that. Heisenberg said, if, if you wanted to understand quantum mechanics in you know, 2,300 years ago, just read Aristotle. What seems strange to us is not strange at all from a, from a hylomorphic perspective at the quantum level. The transition from potency to act is collapse of the quantum waveform. Um, and actually, St. Thomas said something that blew me away, blew me away uh, in uh, De Anima, when he was discussing the active intellect. That is, that in the Aristotelian psychology, the intellect has an active and a passive power. And the active power is the power that extracts the intelligible form from something. Uh, and it basically takes you from a particular thing in your environment to a conceptual understanding of what that thing is all about. So the active intellect metaphorically reaches out and grasps the the intelligible form out of something. And the passive intellect receives that form and allows you to understand it. And what St. Thomas said was that in order for the active intellect to grasp the form of a substance, it must reduce the substance from potency to act. It can't grasp the form until the substance is in act, because if it's a potency, it doesn't exist, which is exactly the mental dependence of quantum collapse that we see in quantum mechanics. That is that the mind has to collapse the waveform in order to grasp it. And that's what St. Thomas said a thousand years ago. So it, it, it just it, it just gave me chills. It gave me chills. So the Thomistic Aristotelian understanding of the mind and frankly of a lot of science is so perfect. It's so it's elegant. That, as I said, 
I think we are ideas in God's mind, but God's a Thomist. <laughs> Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, and my problem with the Cartesian view is, uh, well, first, giving full respect to the idea that there is there is an eye that's missing in Thomism. That it certainly is missing in, uh, in materialism, but it's, it's missing in Thomism that the Cartesian view does show respect to, which I, I think is very good. My problem with the Cartesian view is that Cartesian metaphysics is so wrong in so many ways that I I find. I, I can't accept the the, the mind body metaphysical aspect of such a such an, an inadequate metaphysics in so many other ways. It just grates. <laughs> For example, what is matter? That is that 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 if if one comes from a Cartesian perspective, how does one explain? I mean, what what is matter? Yeah. Well, obviously, there's the traditional Descartes sort of line, or the, at least the interpretation of Descartes, and there's uh, the Neo-Cartesians who who don't always um, put their full commitment behind that sort of definition. And the, the, the definition would would be that that which is extended in space is is that the uh... yeah it's a sort of uh, quantitative measured extension. That's what matter is. But again, yeah, I mean. Um, a Cartesian of today, a contemporary Cartesian, isn't committed to that uh, necessarily. Um, I don't think it follows uh, from from the commitment uh, that one makes about the soul or personal identity. I'm I am wondering if something like an Aristotelian conception of matter, or an idealist slant of a sort of Aristotelian conception of matter, can be compatible with uh, a sort of Cartesian view of the soul. I mean, most most Cartesians today are actually affirming that they don't they're not coming with a sort of full blown metaphysical picture that they have parsed out with respect to um, uh, matter. They're they're not coming at it from uh, with the sort of the freight of the sort of Aristotelian ontological categories, but they are gesturing maybe in that direction. Which um, well, the problem is that. In the Aristotelian view of matter, of course, in a kind of a most fundamental way, matter is potency. But matter, in a substance, I think Aristotle would say, is is the principle of individuation. And um, in Cartesianism, at least for for a human being, the principle of individuation is the soul. So it's completely different. So I don't see how you can blend them. I mean, the the the, the Aristotelian understanding of matter. Is that it, it individuates? And his understanding of form is that it doesn't individuate. Uh, it, it's the it's the principle of intelligibility. It's not the principle of individuation. So, in a sense, the Aristotelian view of the human person would have just the opposite metaphysical commitment to that of Descartes. That is, that it's it's the the matter of the person individuates the person. The soul is the intelligible part. Descartes would say, well, the matter is the measurable, so rather intelligible part, and the soul is what individuates. It's kind of the opposite. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, so I, I think if you come at identity from an Aristotelian perspective, if, if matter is what individuates, then I don't think we're ever going to get at that more fundamental feature that makes me me. Right. And I think that's the harder problem. I think we, there's probably ontological ways we could set up to make sense of um, how sort of um, how matter works and how it how it sort of affects the the mind, um, how it affects perception, 
we can make sense of that if we have a sort of functionally integrated soul body interaction. But uh, I don't think the Aristotelian can ever make sense of the individuality of, of personhood. Right, right, right. And, and I think the, the Aristotelian or Thomist would, would try to skate over that by saying that the person is the composite. Uh, so the, the individuation of the person is because of his matter, but the person himself is is the composite, and therefore he is individuated because he's a composite of matter and, and soul. However, I think I do agree that that's kind of skating. That's you know the, I don't come away emotionally satisfied with that because there is let's face it, there's a metaphysically simple me, mm. and I, I was going to say that I know well, but. Wittgenstein would say, no, I, I don't know me well at all. The, me is what knows, not what is known. Um, and there is something in me that knows, that 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 is me. It's not, it's not in me, it is me. And I do agree that the Cartesian view can handle that, and I don't think the Thomistic view handles it particularly well. And I still keep going to the idea, well, if we were thoughts in God's mind and God was a Thomist, maybe that would handle it well. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's fascinating. Um, well, I, I, I want to thank you. Thank you, Joshua. Would you like to come back for one more session? Sure. Um, I, I would love to talk about uh, philosophy of science, if that, uh, if that appealed to you, and, and how uh, proofs of God's existence and uh, you know, the, the whole science versus religion question, which I, I think is fascinating, if you'd like to do that next. Let's do that, yes. Thank you. Uh, this has been Dr. Michael Egner. Uh, I've had the privilege of interviewing uh, Dr. Joshua Ferris uh, on some fascinating questions about body-mind, and we'll be back to talk about science and religion. Thank you. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.